You can go ahead and be seated, and I invite you to begin making your way to the book of Colossians this morning, chapter 2. Um, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. As, as always, there's Bibles in the seats around you. If there's not one there. There's words on the screen as well. So we look at Colossians chapter 2. Now there's... There's many things that they don't teach you in seminary. And I know because I've been going eight years strong and still quite a bit that I don't know. And one of those things that they don't teach you is what in the world to say on your last day as pastor. I've decided that on this last day where a formal relationship as pastor and congregation, I want to really, in a sense, end where we started. Um, August 2013, I, I, I preached a candidating sermon to you from Colossians chapter 1 uh, on the supremacy of Christ, talking about Christ as the preeminent one, the, the image of God, the agent of creation, the, the one who the writer of Colossians would always say is the one we're needing to look to. So today, my desire is simple. I just want to point you to Christ. I want to exhort you to keep looking towards Jesus, who is the great shepherd, who is the guardian of your soul. I want to encourage you to follow him day in and day out as a shepherd who faithfully leads, feeds, and protects the flock of God. And So in order to do that, I want to bring you back to Colossians. You see, the theme of this New Testament book is the supremacy of Christ. I mean, Paul constantly uh, was telling his readers to look to Jesus. And, and the reason why, the reason why he kept telling them this is because he had a deep concern for the souls of his flock. I mean, he wanted nothing more for them than to have a, a Christ-centered focus to keep walking with Jesus. And, and that is what I want for you. Well, nothing more than to hear that you're continuing to walk with Jesus. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. It follows, I to read along. We're going to give most of our attention to verses 6 and 7, but the first five verses really set us up for the command. This is what he says in chapter 1, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I want you to notice that Paul starts off with a pastoral concern. He gives us something of his heart here. He, he anxiously wants the believers in Colossae to know how much he cares for them. He wants them to know how much he cares for them, but, but also how hard he is striving to meet their needs. That's why he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Now that, that word struggle came, comes from the same word which we get agony. 
There's, there's a sense of striving, like, like the Olympics. It's strenuous, it's athletic, it's demanding. On Paul's end, it's a picture of the intense efforts that he's put forth towards these believers. He says, I, I struggle for you. In chapter 4, verse 12, Paul uses a form of the same word when he mentions Epaphras, who was always laboring earnestly in his prayers. And, and I think in one sense, this is one of the main ways in which Paul is struggling for this congregation. After all, he's in prison. He mentioned it here that many of you have not seen me face to face. And, and so, so you want to ask, how is he struggling? Well, one of the things he's doing is he's struggling for them in, in prayer. It's a form of spiritual labor, an intense struggle, intense struggle against the forces of evil in the kingdom of darkness. I mean, Paul described his struggle with the adjective great. I mean, so he's speaking to the, to the magnitude of abundant inner stress. And Paul says he experienced this struggle for the Colossians, the Laodicean, and, and other believers whom he had not met personally. And yet, we've got to keep in mind that this struggle is modeled by Jesus, who is the good shepherd. And you might ask the question, why did, why did Paul have this internal stress? Why is he struggling? Well, he's struggling for them because God has given him a shepherd's heart which drove him to work on their behalf. His his spiritual desire for the believers produced a great struggle within. And, And he knew this. He knew that he himself is a fallen sinner and that everything that he wanted for them was against the powers of the world, flesh, and the devil. These were no small prayers for for traveling mercies or health requests, those aren't wrong. But Paul's prayers for, for them centered around their maturity. He wanted them to, to grow up in Christ. And yet everything in the world is opposed to that. And so this produced the struggle. On top of that, he was again in prison, he was in Rome, so his ability to directly be with them, to sit with them, to deal with their issues, to, to help them in conflict and struggle was was impossible. But again, he wanted them to be presented mature in Christ. He tells us that in the chapter before. And while it's no easy task, Paul gets a little more specific in verses 2 and 3 as to the maturity he wants for them. Look at what it says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that that may seem a bit wordy. But Paul wants for them to be unified. He doesn't use the word unity, but it's, it's there. The idea is there. Paul wants the believers, he describes it, to be knit together. And so as far as Paul is concerned, uh, the combination of truth and love is what brings unity. Believers have to be substantially of one mind as well as one heart. And that's why Paul wants them to share the rich spiritual assurance that comes with the conviction that all the treasures and all the knowledge and all the insight is to be found in Christ. That's another way for him to say, listen, don't look to anything else. Don't look for answers to your problems anywhere else. Don't look for understanding anywhere else. Don't look for wisdom anywhere else. Look for it in Christ because it is all there. He may use the word hidden. 
but to believers, it's accessible. The riches of Jesus Christ. And here's why I think this matters so much. The reality is we never mature in the Christian faith on our own. That's why he's praying for them to be knit together. Sure, maturity requires that then in private we give ourselves to certain disciplines and certain habits and there's certain ways of walking and living that we must do. But growing up in Christ is also a community project. It means that we need each other. There needs to be accountability and encouragement, transparency with one another. There's an intimacy involved in the, in the lives of each other. That's part of what it means to be the church. So what Paul wanted for the church at Colossae, it's what I want for you. To be knit together in, in love. Paul also wants them to have Assurance, full assurance, assurance to be found in the person of of Christ. And and the loving community, the knit-together community, is the context for that assurance. But with its source, Christ. Like what Robert Murray McShane famously once said, he said, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Every time you, you look at yourself and you look at for that matter, other sinful human beings, then take ten looks at Jesus Christ. Every time you look at yourself and others, you can still see the remaining indwelling sin, the corruption of humanity, depravity. But if you take ten looks at Jesus Christ, you see his sacrifice, his blood, you see the inheritance that he has made available to all of us, that he has prepared for believers, and we never ever move beyond that. But in this pastoral concern is also a warning. Look at verse 4, and he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now, now obviously, you get the idea that the unity of this church in Colossae was under attack. It was being threatened, and and we are only given so much as to, to what's happening on the inside. But most commentators suggest that Paul had in mind, in their midst, somebody who was persuasive. Somebody who made all sorts of arguments, and and not that being persuasive is is a wrong thing, but that this person from the inside was persuading them to the extent that they were leading them down the wrong path. It was false teaching. Maybe it was discord. Maybe they were causing trouble, but this is his concern for them. He, He wants them to know that people will come and be persuasive in their speech, but perhaps lead them down the wrong path. And a healthy group of believers should be careful not to be captivated by persuasion, but to be held by the truth. And and Paul's pastoral concern is marked by joy as well. Look at verse 5. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That's a, that's a joyful verse. I mean, the Colossian church is facing some tough times, and Paul himself, because of this, is experiencing internal stress, probably worked out in the context of prayer, but despite that fact, he wouldn't be able to see them face to face, and yet he still loves them. He's still concerned for them. You get the idea that, that his prayers are going to continue for them. I want you to know this morning, my Prayers are going to continue for you. Even though Paul wouldn't be with them, his delight was to see that they would be firmly standing, rooted in the faith in the midst of their trial. 
doesn't bring me a lot of joy to just simply hear that you're doing the same. Simply hear that you're doing well, firmly established in the faith. Now, there's much more we could say about these first five verses, but I want to move on to the command. We, we have this pastoral concern, but then he moves on to a much-needed reminder. A much-needed reminder. Um, look at verses 6 and 7. It says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Those believers were, were commanded to, to walk the walk of faith. He says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This is the imperative, this is the, the command, this is what He's telling them to do. But notice the motivation. It is as you received Christ. So simply what Paul is doing here is he, he's taking them back to the basics. He's reminding them of what is important. He's in the midst of a culture that was throwing so many different ideas, philosophies, spiritual concepts at them, Paul wanted to remind them of what they were given. Why? I mean, why do you suppose they needed a reminder? My guess is that the church of Colossae was like any other church, and it was comprised of sinners. Sinners who have been redeemed, but sinners nonetheless. And sometimes sinners lose focus of the truth. Somewhere along the line, they start believing something else. Maybe they start believing that they can actually contribute to their right standing before God or that there's something to earn. Or, or perhaps we, we lose focus by a deficiency in our trust. Instead of looking to Jesus, we, we look to ourselves and to our opinions and to our own will. So he reminds them. Walk just as you received Christ. And I say all this because the meaning of the word received, while it certainly includes the idea of receiving Christ personally, it means much more than that. The, the, word, uh, the Greek word means to receive from one another, and it carries this nuance of, of even receiving a tradition. I mean, this time of year we know that quite well. Traditions are handed down, they're passed down, we, we live out things that have been handed down to us from others, but Paul wants to remind them that the most important tradition, the most important thing that they could ever keep doing is keeping focused on Christ. A good question to ask, how have we received Christ? He says you've received Christ, but what, is, what does that actually mean? Well, number one, it means by grace. It's a, it's a saving grace, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. It's a, it's a sanctifying grace, we're told in, in Titus 2. It's a serving grace, we're told in Galatians 5. And it's a sufficient grace that we're told in 2 Corinthians. It, it is a grace that, that sustains us from beginning to end. It's a grace that occurs at the beginning of our Christian walk, but it's a grace that takes us all the way to the end. Second, by faith. I mean, believers receive Christ by faith that is produced by the Word of God and the Gospel which leads to our being justified before God and made to be at peace with Him. It's a, it's a trust, a covenantal trust in the work of God. But also notice as Lord. Believers receive Christ Jesus the Lord. I mean, this is the title used only here by Paul and refers to the doctrine of Christ in all its fullness. And so when these people had believed in Christ 
through the hearing of the gospel, they received a person and not just a philosophy. They received a person and not just an idea. They received a Lord and not only a Savior. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this about it. He said, it's interesting to notice that the apostles preached the Lordship of Christ. The word Savior occurs only twice in the Acts of the Apostles. On the other hand, it's amazing to notice the title Lord is mentioned 92 times. Lord Jesus 13 times and the Lord Jesus Christ 6 times in the same book. And the gospel is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The Lordship of Christ is not a secondary doctrine. It means that, that not only does Christ save us, but now we submit to Him. We, we walk with Him. We give our lives to Him. We are servants of Him. If you're the type of person who you need visuals to understand this, this, this receiving of Jesus Christ and, and what all it means, then you're in luck because we have two baptisms today. And so, and so you have a clear picture, right, of, of what happens when a person becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they've been crucified with Christ. They're dead to sin. And as they go into the water, it symbolizes being buried with Christ and coming out. It symbolizes this new life as a person has been raised with Christ to now walk in a certain way, united to Him. A new person, not the old person, but a completely transformed person. Paul's command to walk is best translated Keep walking. Keep walking. Continually walk. Habitually walk. It stresses the daily walk of spiritual development. Your walk is really a pretty good indication of what's happening on the inside. Paul is commanding here that there must be a direct connection between who Jesus is and how we walk or live. So think of it this way. You've received Him by grace, and so you keep walking in grace. You received Him by faith, and so you keep walking in faith. You received Him as Lord, and so you keep walking in a progressively deeper submission to His Lordship. Our walk in Him as believers, we, we live in a union with Christ, and it's only in Christ that we become a new creation. It's only in Christ that we become fruitful. It's only in Christ that we are accepted by God. Now, now let me just make some application. Number one, a lack of connection between Christ and and your life is not normal. Think about it for a second. Paul is, is telling them you need to keep your eyes on Jesus, you need to keep walking with Him, you need to walk in Him, you need to keep walking in the same way that you received Him. And so that means for us as believers, if there's no connection between Christ and your daily life, that is not normal. I mean that Jesus is supposed to take over your life and, and, and what you hear on Sunday is supposed to be worked out in how you live, and that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. But it does mean that if you come week after week and there's no connection to your life, you're rarely feeling convicted, there's hardly ever a motivation to do anything, you need to know that that is not a good place to be in. Solution to a faltering faith is focusing more on Jesus, not on more, more on yourself. I mean, the tradition that you received is Christ Jesus the Lord, therefore focus on Him. There's a tendency when things are not going well in our walk, when we're struggling, when we feel dry, when, when we feel disconnected from the Lord, that we look to something or someone to get us unstuck. Let me save you a lot of time. 
problem is ultimately your sin. Perhaps someone else's sin is involved in that, but, but either way, the best remedy for both is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ. The more you know about him, the more you'll want to live for him. The more you relish in the glories of Jesus Christ, the more motivated you are to submit to him. And so I chose this passage because if there's one last thing I could say to you this morning, it's to make sure that there's an intimate connection between Jesus and the way that you live. That it defines the way that you live. That it says everything about the way that you live. That the way in which you live ultimately says something about Christ, not just to the people who know you intimately, but to everybody. Paul began with a pastoral concern. He moves to a much-needed reminder, and then he finishes with instructions on, on how to walk. Again, verse 7, So walk in him, listen to this, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So the apostle describes the lifelong walk of believers in, in really four ways. He, rooted, built up, established and abounding in thanksgiving. Now, what I want you to notice is that the first three are all passive. They're all pointing to the fact that God is the one who is doing the work. But the final description, abounding in thanksgiving, is active on your end. So first, a firmly rooted walk, having been firmly rooted, the the word here used describes the solid foundation of a building. This is a settled state brought about by conversion. When a person becomes a new creation in Christ, when they become a new person in the Lord Jesus. It's used in the perfect tense, which means that something happened in the past, but it has present implications. It's it's a done deal. Conversion has happened. You've been saved. To be rooted in Christ means that our spiritual life is directly connected to Him, both positionally and Practically. I mean, it's living out the reality of your life in Christ. And, and you might ask, so, so what is our position in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Paul says it in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So spiritual maturity is not about becoming more independent. It's about becoming more dependent. It's about becoming more dependent on the person of Christ. Second, it's a steadily progressive walk. He says, now being built up in him. So, so think about it this way. There's a, there's a structure, a superstructure that sits on top of, of a basement. There's, there's the two-by-fours, there's the drywall, and it signifies that becoming like Christ is not... Not this overnight event. Right? And if you built a house, you know it's not an overnight event. It's a process. And he's talking about the Christian life. It's a lifelong process. Sometimes we think that gaining victory over a particular sin or a particular struggle is, is this overnight thing. We just say a prayer and it should be done and, and gone away with. But yet, it is this ever-increasing dependence upon the Lord's grace which we lay aside the old nature. Put on the new. Sanctification is a slow, steady growth like that of an oak tree, not, not like a poplar tree. 
We're being built up in Him. This is God's work in us. And Paul calls believers to grow up in such a way that there is visible progress. In other words, in the same way that you wouldn't be happy with a half-built home, the Lord is calling you to not be happy with a partially constructed spiritual life. People who know Jesus keep building their lives upon Him. You need to not be content where you're at. I mean, it's okay to say, hey, I'm not the person I want to be. I'm not perfect, but I'm not who I once was. Third, it's a doctrinally established walk. He says to established in your faith, just as you were instructed. So, so the faith is probably a better translation than your faith. Uh, this is the objective faith. In other words, the Christian walk is built upon doctrine, it's built upon truth, unchangeable truth, which provide the stability for the Christian life. And put another way, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. A person's not going to find much stability in a subjective faith or, or some sort of experience these are always lacking. They're always inferior to the clear assurance that comes from the Word of God. And, and, and Peter referred to Scripture as more sure than even the most dramatic spiritual experience. 2 Peter 1.19 We have this sure thing. Brothers and sisters, we need to read our Bibles. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. And again, the idea here is that our walk is sort of increasing. It's incremental in spiritual strength. Since it's directly connected to in the faith, the phrase means that there's an ever-growing confidence in the content of what you believe. And so, let me put it this way, the more you experience the power of the Word, the more confident you'll be in the Word. The more you'll trust the Word. Walking in Christ and being established in the faith means you have a greater trust in the promises of God. Maturity is marked by having less confidence in yourself and a greater confidence in the Word. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 28, My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your Word. Fourth and last, it is an abundantly thankful walk. Is overflowing with gratitude. The believer's walk of faith should be abounding in thankfulness. So the more you grow in your understanding, the more you grow in, in your understanding of the doctrines of the Christian faith, the more grateful you'll be. This sounds elementary in some sense, but, but we often forget it. God wants His children to be thankful. It is His will for each of us, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, and in light of all that God has done for us in Christ, how can we be anything else? Now, it's important to remember that the former three descriptions, rooted, built up, and established, were all in the passive voice. But however, this one is not. It's in the active. Therefore, all the other characteristics are done to you. They're done for you, but this one is one in which you are to aggressively and actively and excessively participate in thankfulness. And as you enter into a different season in the life of this church, you need to enter into a season of thankfulness. The apostles' command to keep walking in Christ is similar to the closing desire of the apostle Jude. 
He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Nothing, nothing will ever separate the believer from Christ or his great love for us. He is the good shepherd. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if there's one thing that you could walk away from, one last thing that I could impart to you is that Jesus never, ever fails. Father, we want to thank you for such a sure and steady word. Thank you for the fact that changes happen while people come and go. The the one thing that always remains, will always remain, is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we pray, Father, today, now, forever, that we would keep our eyes on Him and that we would walk in Him. We ask this in Jesus' name.